Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On June 16th, the UN's top humanitarian official, Mark Lowcock, told members of the Security Council that there is famine in parts of the Ethiopian region of Tigray. Some 350,000 people in Tigray are living in famine conditions, with millions more at risk. Quote, we are at a tipping point, Lowcock said. So far, the urgent appeals from the humanitarian community have not been met with commensurate action by key players in Tigray, including the Ethiopian government. Since November 2020, the federal government of Ethiopia, backed by troops in neighboring Eritrea, have fought a war against the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. The TPLF is the dominant political force in the Tigray region, but for decades the TPLF was the dominant political party in the federal government as well. That was until Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018 and effectively sidelined the TPLF. As my guest today, Zecharias Zalalem, explains, unresolved conflict between the TPLF and the Abiy Ahmed-led government is what led to the outbreak of civil war. Zecharias Zalalem is a freelance journalist and contributor to Al Jazeera and The Telegraph, among other outlets. We kick off with a discussion about the circumstances that led to the outbreak of war in November 2020. This includes the delaying of national elections last summer, ostensibly due to COVID. Those delayed elections are now scheduled for June 21st, 2021, which is just a few days from now. And we do discuss the implications of the elections for the trajectory of conflict in Ethiopia. By all accounts, the situation in Tigray is extremely grim and about to get much worse. This conversation, though, does a good job of explaining how we got to this point. Today's episode is supported in part through a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to showcase African voices discussing peace and security issues in Africa. To access other episodes in this series, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with journalist Zacharias Zalalem. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In November of last year, we saw the breakout of hostilities in Tigray between 
the uh, then Tigray regional government led by the TPLF or the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the federal government in Addis Ababa. That brought that uh, led to the breaking out of uh, the brutal civil war that has resulted in the deaths of thousands and the displacement of millions as well as um, systemic starvation across the region. Um, but the breakout of hostilities was actually the culmination of two years of worsening hostilities uh, between the regional and federal governments and an inability by representatives of both governments to solve their their many underlying issues amicably or through roundtable talks resulted in the ongoing conflict that we see today. So on November 4th, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced that TPLF forces, uh, Tigrayan regional government forces had attacked uh, federal army bases in the region. And he used that as a pretext to uh, launch an invasion of the region uh, backed by troops from neighboring Eritrea. There is evidence, however, that points to the war being planned in advance. And as I said, uh, this is really the result of uh, years of worsening tensions. And we're, we've, we're bearing the unfortunate fruits of it. Mass rape, uh, massacres, uh, all sorts of human rights violations. So we are speaking uh, just ahead of scheduled national elections that were delayed. Um, and I'm interested to learn from you what role in delaying the elections back in 2020 might have had in contributing to this conflict or what factor did the, did the fact that uh, the Ethiopian government delayed elections, I believe in the summer of 2020, um, to the outbreak of conflict in November 2020? So when, uh, when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was ushered into power on the, uh, on the back of popular uprisings in 2018, uh, he had pledged um, to oversee a transitional government that would um, that would uh, pave things and for the pave things for the preparation of Ethiopia's first ever free and fair elections. It would be a historic first uh, for Ethiopians. Uh, in preparation of this, um, all sorts of political organizations that had been previously outlawed were uh, decriminalized Exiled politicians and activists were invited back into the country to take part in, I guess, what was the fledgling democratic process. And there was some reason to be optimistic at the time. Uh, that was in 2018. As things um, uh, gradually went by, uh, there had been the very slow uh, but noticeable closing up of the political space and um, setbacks. Uh, with regards to Ethiopia's democracy. Suddenly, uh, politicians and op members of the opposition that had been freed from prison were being rearrested. Uh, there was a clampdown on independent media outlets. And this um, took a very ugly turn for the worse in 2020, uh, when a very famous uh, activist and popular Oromo musician by the name of Hach Alukundesa was murdered on June 29th. Um, Following the murder, uh, which Ethiopian forces blamed on members of the political opposition, there were mass arrests of members of the opposition, uh, as well as uh, outspoken critical voices. And 
one of the reasons why there had been uh, worsening tensions between members of Ethiopia's political opposition was because of the Ethiopian government's announcement that it would postpone elections, citing the COVID-19 pandemic. And most of the political opposition that had reestablished themselves in Ethiopia had done so with the promise that there would be elections scheduled for no later than August 2020. So a lot of them took issue with the decision to postpone the polls and saw them as Abiy, um, I guess, um, not not uh, remaining firm to his own word. Mm. And it also turned a significant section of the Ethiopian population against uh, against the Ethiopian government and had many doubting the sincerity of Ethiopia's democratic or the Ethiopian government's democratic aspirations. Um, but the Tigray regional government, it went a step further and announced that despite the announcement uh, by Ethiopian parliament that polls would be postponed, uh, that it would go ahead anyways and hold its own regional government elections. Um, so these polls were not recognized by the Addis Ababa-based National Ethiopian Election Board. And it really worsened tensions to the point of uh, no return between the federal government mm -hmm. and the regional government in Tigray. The TPLF ended up uh, winning the election uh, in a landslide. Not surprisingly. They, yeah, not surprisingly. The TPLF, uh, prior to their being ousted from Addis Ababa, they were at the helm of government in Ethiopia for about three decades, in which time period they held about four or five uh, general elections, none of which were ever considered uh, free and fair by observers. It's just so, maybe um, worth worth noting and worth pointing out that, as you said, for three decades, the TPLF was the dominant political party of the coalition that ran the government of Ethiopia until Abiy Ahmed came to power. Precisely. The the uh, EPRDF coalition, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic um, Front that that uh, was composed of multiple polit political parties, was in truth dominated by a single party, the TPLF, run by Tigrayan elites. So uh, this monopoly of sorts of government uh, led to the breakout of protests, which ultimately resulted in Abiy coming to power in 2018. Um, but yeah, the eventually in Tigray with the uh, the holding of rogue elections, um, it really highlighted the, the the fragile nature of government in Addis Ababa. And I guess for Addis for Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, it was the point of no return. Um, and within months of those polls, um, both the Tigrayan regional government. And the Addis Ababa-based federal government announced that they would not recognize the other. And it push eventually led to shove. And we saw on November 4th, um, the breakout of the ongoing of the civil war that is, that, uh, is now seven months and counting. Could you describe the trajectory of that civil war over the course of the last seven months and explain sort of where things stand today um so for the initial months of the war um the region's communications were severed so with no phone and no internet access uh it was really impossible to authenticate some of the accounts uh including some of the very harrowing accounts that were coming from the region 
uh, in most modern day coverage of war, you will receive updates, timely updates of uh, which warring faction is in charge or who has taken control of this town or who has suffered battleground defeats. Um, there was nothing of the sort for months uh, due to the fact that journalists and aid workers were prohibited from, from reaching the region. And all that journalists had to rely on were accounts from refugees who had fled Ethiopia into neighboring Sudan. Um, so by the, by the time um, Ethiopian forces captured the Tigrayan capital of Mekali, uh, a month, about three weeks or so into the war, uh, we were unable to verify accounts, for instance, that Eritrean soldiers were involved, something that we would only learn of um, uh, months, months later. Uh, we were unable to verify uh, mounting accounts of atrocities committed by all sides, uh, other than the November 9th Maikadra massacre. Um, we were unable to verify reports of uh, abuses against civilians, uh, rape, uh, looting of property. Um, a lot of this remained allegations and it was impossible to, to investigate. After, uh, well, after November 28th, after the capture of Mekali, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced victory. And he also announced that the war had ended and a phase of rebuilding the region would, would begin. Um, an interim uh, administration was established in Tigray and the regional government was ousted officially. Um, however, uh, it is obviously clear to any observer at this point that hostilities never ended. Um, the TPLF, the Tigray regional government, despite being ousted from its uh, capital, city uh, have transitioned to guerrilla warfare and have been engaged in an insurgency uh, targeting Ethiopian forces as well as um, allied troops from neighboring Eritrea. And over the course of um, the past uh, four or five or the, the five or four or five months since the capture of Magali, uh fighting has intensified and so have atrocities, uh, which we've since been able to verify uh, using uh, an array of uh, techniques, um, the use of satellite imagery, um, smuggled video and photo evidence uh, that we've been able to geolocate to specific areas in the region. Uh, journalists from major media outlets around the world have been able to paint a very grim but very accurate picture of a war in which um, state forces are meeting punitive action out against the civilian population in Tigray. And by the time uh, April and May came about, uh, it was very clear. The nature of the conflict had become very evident for even um, um, the major diplomatic players of the world. And the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments have since come under mounting pressure to uh, seize attacks against civilians, to um, to hold their own troops and commanders to account, uh, and to allow access to the region for um, NGOs and international aid workers to address the very, very dire, extremely dire humanitarian uh, cri uh, crisis in the region, which has led to 
something like 90% of Tigrayans uh, needing emergency food aid. So yeah. at this moment, it, it is as grim as it gets. So on on that last point, you know, we're speaking a day after uh, the top UN humanitarian official, Mark Lowcock, uh, addressed members of the UN Security Council, you know, saying that there is famine ongoing in parts of Tigray and that it is caused in part by Eritrean troops refusing uh, food access and humanitarian access to the population. Can you discuss and explain the role of Eritrean troops in, you know, what is otherwise a a civil war? You know, I, I get that, for example, the TPLF, the ruling party of Tigray for many years, that ruled Ethiopia for many years, is an avowed enemy of Eritrea. Uh, and that President Abiy Ahmed, as one of his early, pardon me, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, as one of his early moves, sought to make peace with Eritrea. Uh, so now it seems that Eritrean troops are exacting their revenge on their long foe, the Tigrayans, uh, but are doing so in a way specifically designed to inflict harm on the Tigrayan people. Yeah, um, as you pointed out uh, towards the end right there, um, the Eritrean government has been a foe of the Tigrayan, the former Tigrayan regional government uh, for years. It dates back to um, the 1998-2000 Ethiopian-Eritrean border war in which the then TPLF-led Ethiopian government uh, fell out with the Eritrean government and then engaged in the very destructive war uh, that led to something like 70,000 people dying. So the two sides have never really reconciled. And Abiy Ahmed's uh, coming to power led to the eventual um, reestablishment of ties between the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments. Uh, however, it did, not lead, it did not lead to um, any sort of warming up, sincere warming up between the TPLF, who had by then retreated to Mankale, and the Eritrean government. So it was always in the Eritrean government's interests to see the TPLF uh, be ousted from influence in the region. And it is what's behind the Eritrean government's eventual deploying of troops uh, into Ethiopia. I remember that Ethiop- that the Eritrean government's uh, presence, the Eritrean military's presence, sorry, in, in Tigray, uh, was denied for months uh, by both Asmara and Addis Ababa. Um, finally, after uh, after mounting evidence and after it became impossible to conceal any longer, it was only in March, um, something like five months into the war, that the that Ethiopia's prime minister finally admitted to their presence in the region. Uh, but shortly after, he also stated that they would be withdrawing. With, uh, and that their withdrawal had begun with, with immediate effect. Uh, some three three months or so since that statement, Eritrean troops uh, remain firmly entrenched across Tigray. There's no sign of any of them uh, withdrawing. And they are actually playing a very detrimental role with regards to the, the region's... Uh, um, humanitarian, uh, the, the, the humanitarian initiative. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, said, it's so, yeah. I just say, from my perspective, covering the UN for many years, it's actually quite rare for a senior UN official to so directly call out a UN member state for such harmful action and saying, you know, that you know, Eritrean troops are causing famine in Ethiopia right now. Now, Eritrea is, is sort of something of a, of a rogue state. It doesn't have many international allies, but it is still, I think, notable uh, that uh, the UN, the senior UN humanitarian uh, official said such a thing in such a direct way. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, def- it's definitely a break away from their um, modus operandi. I guess the UN's modus operandi in recent months. Um, not many people are aware of this, but um, the UN were, were actually able to establish um, without any doubt that Eritrean soldiers were in Tigray uh, by December. Uh, this was due to um, an incident on December 7th outside of a UNHCR refugee camp in Tigray in which UN staff driving towards uh, the camp were shot at by troops manning a checkpoint just outside of the, the refugee camp. Uh, at the time, the Ethiopian government told media outlets that it was its forces behind the uh, the shooting, and they blamed UN staff for encroaching uh, in areas that uh, they were prohibited from uh, accessing. Um, but what is known is that those were actually Eritrean troops um, who had fired upon UN staff. And for some reason, the UN never, uh, UN staff never shared this bit of information um, with the rest of the world. It took maybe another month and a half for. Uh, international journalists to firmly establish that Eritrean soldiers were in the region. So there's been a bit of a reluctance on behalf of the UN uh, to really uh, call out uh, some of the warring factions. Um, There was two UNHCR camps, Hmm. the Shemelba and uh, Hatsat refugee camps, which were raised to the ground by Ethiopian and Eritrean troops. Uh, between December and January, something that's been verified by multiple media outlets. And this has not been uh, adequately addressed, at least publicly, uh, by the UN. Um, So it it could be perhaps a fear of losing the very limited access they have to the region uh, or politics or whatever the case. Uh, Even the very recent recent, uh, news reports, which said, which uh, Put the, uh, the 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 tally of Tigrayans needing food aid at something like ninety percent of the population. They were leaked to the public and uh, by journalists by Reuters, and uh, not something that the UN um, formally announced mm-hmm. until uh, in, in, uh, until journalists uh, had published stories on it. So there's definitely been a sort of dilly dallying of sorts by the UN with regards to concrete action. And it's something that the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, seems somewhat exasperated about. I think she said, do African lives not matter when the Security Council had has so far refused to hold a formal session on this issue owing to divisions uh, at the Security Council, principally China and Russia, sort of still considering this to be sort of an internal uh, issue and not something that would rise to be like an issue of international peace and security. Um, of course. I want yeah. I, so so. I wanted to have you speak a bit to the 
upcoming elections. You know, by the time people listen to this, the elections probably will have already been started on June 21st. Uh, it seems like just an incredibly fraught situation. As I understand it, about one fifth of the seats that are to be elected are not even holding elections because of conflict. And then you have a number of opposition parties that are just boycotting it. So this does seem to be just a, a very deeply problematic event that will unfold. Uh, yes, um, unfortunately, with uh, with under a week to go, um, there are no signs that uh, Ethiopians uh, will have the credible, transparent, free and fair elections uh, that they had been promised uh, in 2018. Uh, as you rightfully pointed out, uh, a number of um, opposition uh, opposition parties, uh, including parties that were slated to provide the ruling party with the stiffest challenge at the polls, have been systematically excluded. Um, those that uh, boycotted, that are set to boycott the elections, are doing so principally because their leaders and many of their members uh, have been detained for a little over a year now. Uh, and oh, there's also a very severe lack of uh, representation uh, with, with regards to the competing parties. The grand majority of, um, of the parties with uh, a noticeable amount of um, candidates will be based out of Addis Ababa. So these are Addis Ababa-based parties with their reach and their support bases in the capital city. Um, Ethiopia is a country of about 110, between 110 to 120 million people. And the capital city holds less than 5% of, of that population. So for entire regions, such as the entire Oromia region, uh, home to something like a third of Ethiopia's population, to have uh, no prominent uh, political parties representing them, uh, to have the Tigray region excluded from the elections, obviously um, due to the uh, security situation, and then to have other regions, such as the Somali region, um, to have their polls and their um their voting uh, procedure postponed due to um, technicalities, due to suspected voter fraud uh, and other irregularities. Well, there's, it definitely points to there, there being a very problematic uh, nature with the upcoming polls. Um, the lack of representation, of course, is the, is the most pressing matter with regards to um, uh, the election's credibility, and as it stands, uh, a single social demographic or social constituency, if you will, uh, is set to be represented while uh, most are excluded from the elections. I mean, so this situation is being engineered to ensconce Abiy Ahmed in, in power. It's, it's a sort of like abundantly clear this is not a free and fair election. Well, the evidence definitely points to that. Um, the fact that uh, the his major political opponents, those who who stood the best, uh, who, who, those who um, who would have um, seriously challenged him, they remain behind bars. Uh, they've been behind bars since uh, June of last year, 
and they're charged with a variety of trumped-up charges, including treason, terrorism, and even involvement with the murder of uh, uh, of the famous singer Hajj Al-Hundisa last year. Uh, there's been no evidence uh, presented in, in court for any of these charges, um, but they've been denied the the uh, the uh, the chance to participate in these polls. Uh, there is one party, one Nadisawa-based party uh, known as the Baldaras Party. So its leader, uh, press freedom advocate Eskender Nagga, who's been in prison yeah. for about a year now, uh, a court has ruled that he would be able to take part in elections. He'd be able to run from prison, um, which is a relative, which is an unprecedented phenomenon. Uh, but be that as it may, um, his party has still been um, forbidden from openly campaigning. And obviously, um, their leaders have been unable to address the public directly due to the fact that they remain incarcerated. So, um, yeah, this is uh, unfortunately. I didn't realize that about Eskander Nega. I, I mean, I recognize that name from his time as the jailed blogger during the previous Melissa Nawi uh, era. Uh, and yep. it just seems, you know, just a very telling that once in prison as being like a, you know, a social media blogger now out of jail, now back in prison, it's sort of like the trajectory of Ethiopia's political freedom and, and politics as a whole over the last uh, several years. Yes. Eskander Nagga is among several uh, yeah. political opposition leaders who were released and then rearrested. Uh, in fact, it was the, re- the releases of many of these leaders that had uh, sparked so much optimism uh, at the beginning of uh, Abiy Ahmed's rule in 2018. Uh, tens of thousands of political prisoners uh, are believed to have been released. And this contributed to um, Abiy Ahmed's eventual winning of the Nobel Peace Prize um, in 2019. But be that as it may, it seems that old habits die hard. And uh, Eskander Nagga remains in prison facing many of this, the same charges that he faced uh, when he was detained during the, the era of uh, Prime Minister Malla Zainawi. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. This is obviously a distressing situation that is not uh, poised to get much better in, in the near term, but I, exper- but I appreciate you helping me and, and the audience understand better you know, what is going on and what is driving this conflict and its impact right now. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, I think uh, I'd just like to point out that uh, above all, uh, at least in my case and in the case of many other journalists who've been covering these stories over the course of the past uh, seven months. I think we owe it to the um, the residents of Tigray and the residents of affected regions, uh, those who are in the midst of grief and in the midst of traumatic experiences, who uh, still manage to open up and share openly with, uh, with journalists like myself and enabled us to cover the situation with, with accuracy. Um, that's... It's not an easy ask uh, in the midst of a tough time like this. And I, I think I, I'd just like to pay tribute to that. Those like kind of concluding remarks actually make me 
curious to learn more about how you are able to conduct journalism about what's going on in the region that, as you noted earlier, was just basically shut off and is still to a large degree shut off beyond access of many humanitarian workers, uh, beyond access of, of journalists. So it's, it's your just kind of direct communication with people in the affected region that are helping you better understand what's going on. Uh, yes, over the course of the past seven months, uh, I've been able to establish a network of contacts um, uh, across the region and also around the world. Those who are who are who have been vital to uh, me being connected to people um, in different towns and different cities. Uh, it's, this, it's through this network that I've uh, been able to some extent um, be successful in establishing if certain atrocities were carried out or not. Uh, it's through this network of contacts that uh, I was able to um, obtain um, video, for instance, of atrocities that, that are smuggled out of Tigray due to the due to the fact that there remains no internet access across the region. And also, of course, there are those who who are suffering and who have lost family members over the course of the past seven months, who, in the midst of their grieving, have entrusted me with their stories. And I guess my track record perhaps uh, has uh, uh, convinced some that I might be right for the, for hearing their stories, and uh, that's that's quite an honor. Uh, well, well, thank you. That that's that's useful and and um, just an interesting example of how a journalist abroad can with some expertise, you know, cover a, a fraught situation like this. Well, it also helps that, I mean, I am Ethiopian. So yeah. a lot of them speak Amharic. So, you know, that, that's obviously, yeah. that obviously helps. <laughs> Not a doubt, but it's, uh, it's still difficult. And to be honest, I think we've only, uh, we've only been able to cover perhaps the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, it, you really need to fully open up the region uh, for there to be a more thorough uh, picture, but uh, we've done the best with what we can, I believe. And, and I'll point everyone to your uh, Twitter feed as well, which is a Thanks. vital resource for for keeping up with what's going on. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. No problem, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Zacharias. And as I mentioned at the end of that conversation, I will post a link to his Twitter handle in the show notes of this episode. If you follow me at Mark L. Goldberg, you will also see me retweeting him often. And just one disclaimer before I let you go that the views expressed in this episode belong solely to those of us who expressed those views. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.